Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Oliver Stone about chasing the light. Now, this is actually the second time I've had the pleasure of speaking with Oliver about this book, his memoir, which covers his life from birth all the way through the breakthrough that happened to him as a result of the film Platoon. Before you listen to today's conversation, I'd like to encourage you to go back and listen to episode number 61, the first time Oliver and I spoke. That interview is much more about the book. Now, you will hear a little bit about the book coming up, but we also get into some highlights from his film career since then, like JFK, The Doors, Natural Born Killers, Any Given Sunday, talks a little bit about Snowden as well, and then we just discuss some random stuff too, like his thoughts on Star Wars and his beloved San Francisco 40. Niners, and has he seen the Magic Loogie episode from Seinfeld that was inspired by his film JFK? All of that and more coming up right now on Books on Pod. This is Matt Taibbi, author of Hate Inc., and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Ellen. Hello, readers. Oliver Stone is a four-time Academy Award-winning filmmaker and the author of his memoir, Chasing the Light. Writing, directing, and surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and the movie Game. Oliver, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm okay, and how are you? I'm doing very well. Happy May 4th to you. This is a big day for Star Wars fans. Now, I'm not the biggest Star Wars guy, but do you have strong feelings about the Star Wars franchise one way or the other? I have no strong feelings about it. I saw the film in 79, right? And it was great then. It's certainly aged, though, when you look at it again. It looks it looks like a Flash Gordon episode on TV or something. It's funny you say that. I was uh, on my sports radio show today. I was talking about how I watched the original, the one that came out in 1979 with my four-year-old who wanted to watch it. And we have one of these big, nice televisions now, 75-inch screen, 4K capabilities. I mean, you could really tell that they were in a sound studio recording that. Goes to show just how far the technology has come along in the last 40 years now, yeah. right? It's pretty amazing. When you see it, you saw it with your four-year-old now. Yep. But back in 79, it was quite something. Right. Uh, It was exciting and just felt like it was an old sci-fi, like Buster Crab and Flash Gordon back in the 40s. (laughs) (laughs) The the material looked junky. The spaceships, everything didn't look... It's very funny. It's very subjective that way. Well, Oliver, I don't want to bury the lead here. You're obviously a, a big San Francisco 49ers fan. You guys uh, just surprised some people with who you selected with the number three pick in the draft last Thursday. Are you happy with the team going with Trey Lance at quarterback? Are you a 49er fan? I respect the 49ers. Kyle Shanahan went to school here at UT in Austin, so I'm a, a big fan of his, what he was able to do with the Falcons and getting you guys to the Super Bowl a couple years ago. But I have to admit, I thought he was reaching with Trey Lance just a little bit. Reaching, yeah. Well, my feeling is that it's contextual, is that he's fucked up twice. He's talented, very talented, but he fucked up with the Falcons, and he got defensive when he was ahead, and he fucked up with the uh, – Kansas City Chiefs, they could have been beaten. He got cautious, and he didn't put his faith into Garoppolo at that last quarter. If the Niners had made a couple more first downs, they would have won. So it was definitely some kind of breakdown in his psychology, too. And He went defensive, and I think what he's doing here is at least a correction in the sense that he is reaching, and that's good for him because he's got to. He sees the problem. In his mindset, I think that the guy, from what I heard, is great. But as you know, it's all risky. I mean, the problem with the draft is they're spending way too much money on these guys. And 
they all get injured. It's all kind of a ripoff in a way. It's a ripoff. In the old days, you could at least take a chance and not break your bank with it, you know? Yeah, hopefully they do something about the salary cap. I feel like they've swung too far in the wrong direction versus where all other pro sports, including the lack of guaranteed contracts for what is easily the most brutal sport of the major four here in America. Well, baseball, too, is ridiculous. I mean, the numbers have gotten gigantic, and it just feels wrong to me because to be an owner, you've got to be a billionaire, obviously, and that's I don't think is right. Something's wrong with the game. Anyway, my theory is that Garoppolo will have a good season, you see. He's under pressure, and I think he's going to deliver. But, my God, it's so specialized now. I, you know, they have so many coaches on the field. A head coach is like, you know, he's got his own spaceship here. He's got 10 people working for him that are <laughs> it's really amazing stuff that's happened. I remember when they were in the early 50s, they were playing both ways, you know. They were guys who played both ways. And... Uh, I got to know Y.A. Tittle a bit, who was a 49er quarterback, and, and Bob St. Clair, and they would tell me stories about those days when they played. It was just unbelievable, the cheating that would go on the line of scrimmage. and the guy, They would gouge out each other's eyes and stuff like that. They were always playing dirty back then. It was a much more brutal sport back then. Did you meet those guys as part of filming for any given Sunday? Yeah, St. Clair was there. Joe Schmidt of the Detroit Lions. I mean, a lot of Y.A. Taylor was there. A lot of the older guys came out. Johnny Unitas, that was great. Oliver, although uh, this obviously wasn't part of the book, I still marvel at any given Sunday, considering that the NFL refused to allow you to use real teams. And much like so many of your other films, watching it 20 years later, you understand why. You were exposing truths to the perils of pro sports that the league has been finally forced to own up to over the last few years. I actually spoke with Dennis Quaid a while back about that, and then also Lawrence Taylor, and he said that playing golf in the mornings with LT was just a, a crazy thing. He would actually show up to the tee box barefooted and then just hit the you-know-what out of the ball. But he also pointed out that Taylor did a really good job of acting in that film. Do you agree with that assessment of LT, and do you have a favorite LT moment from In Between Takes? It was such a circus. I mean, frankly, I was so preoccupied with getting the next shot and trying to make the schedule. But a lot of the stuff that you say was going on, I wasn't even aware of. I didn't, the golf games. Yeah. Sometimes I'd say to my AD, where the hell is the background? Because I always needed a background. It's a tough film when you have to use supporting actors who are well-known as background. Essentially they're standing there most of the day because they don't have their lines or something. And it's tough to ask actors to do that for any director. And frankly, there was a lot of background work in that movie. So I did the best I could, but I couldn't be a cop on everybody's ass. There were too many supporting actors in that movie. Jimmy was cheating all the time. Yeah, sure, he played golf with LT. LT was a character, yeah. But they were all characters in their way, and I don't know how I managed that circus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, the film, you know, we had no cooperation from the NFL, so it was a, you know that, right? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, you understand why in retrospect, because you were... 10 to 15 years early on a lot of things that eventually became issues for that league. They were just trying to keep everybody's heads in the sand. We featured the idea of the quarterback being a runner. We featured all that aspect of it. So in that sense, it was ahead of the spectrum. But the NFL made it very difficult. They actively went against the film in the sense that they put out memo to the teams asking team owners not to cooperate. They also tried to undermine us by 
talking the University of Florida out of giving us the Orange Bowl, which was dirty of them. And we managed to wangle, no matter what, we managed to wangle three different stadiums. We had the support of the Dolphins, Wazenga, Wayne Wazenga, and we had the support of several owners, actually. But Jerry Jones was a key figure because he said, fuck them. And he said, take the uh, Dallas Stadium. That's interesting because you also had Barry Switzer as one of the announcers and you had a couple of inside jokes with him saying things about I think at one point the head coach goes after one of the referees and so you put those little subtleties in there those little nuances are one of the things that I really enjoy about your films yeah I did enjoy it very much I was a rebel I guess in my filmmaking I just I even fought with my football advisor because uh, he was too conservative for me. I wanted my own plays. I wanted my, I wanted to keep the thing into a modern game. I didn't want to play the old three yards and a cloud of dust, you know? Well, I loved Chasing the Light, Oliver, and uh, obviously it's out in paperback now. You admit in these pages that you're a guy who does read reviews, both good and bad, of your own work. Are you happy with how Chasing the Light has been received so far? The reviews, they were very good, those that I read, but they weren't that many. It was not covered because of COVID partly, and who knows, but it was not really given mainstream uh, coverage. Uh, We got good reviews when they were read, but people, I don't know why. I just think it was a combination of factors. It was a bad break, bad luck. It's very hard to do great business when bookstores are not open, you know? Mm -hmm. It's everything comes to Amazon and people don't hear about the book. In other words, our timing was terrible. But I love writing, and I'd love to do another one. I'd love to do a sequel. So somehow I figure there'll be some publisher somewhere that will treat it better. I don't think the publisher made a big effort. I think they put it out kind of run of the mill, and they didn't make much of an effort to push it. Also, it was a a company that was sold shortly a while ago to uh, Harper and Rowe, which is a bigger distribution, apparently. Mm. You know, not good luck, not good timing. Well, I hope you do write a second book. This first one was well worth it. Well, everybody's going to connect you to movies, and there are plenty of stories that you tell from the set. This is also your life story through Platoon as well, and the romance between your father and mother. They meet in World War II. He is a U.S. soldier. She is a woman living and a native of France. And you also talk about your complex relationship with the both of them. As a matter of fact, you showed your dad an early draft of what eventually became Platoon. And his feedback was essentially that the story was too ugly. And why can't you give people a little bit more hope? And you responded to him that the hope was within telling the truth of what happened. Now, this went against the lesson that he had told you repeatedly when you were growing up, which was something to the effect of, kiddo, don't tell the truth. You'll only get yourself in trouble. What's the best example that comes to mind for you when telling the truth got you in trouble? (laughs) Well, I couldn't even begin to itemize that one. I've had that attitude rebellious attitude most of my life. I got into trouble in the army. Not that I was looking to be promoted, but (laughs) certainly uh, I had hard relationships with the master sergeants. It went on. And then this film business has been very tricky for me. You know, there's a way of doing things in the film business and it's traditional. And to some degree, they're right. I mean, it works a certain way. You have to turn out product and they do turn it out. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, some people complain about it, but There is a tradition of just make it, get it done. So I I tried to make everything a little different, stand out on its own. I tried to be individualistic about each film. 
And I think I was successful in doing that, but the films were not always successful. You see, there was a lot of zeros. I drew a lot of zeros. I took the chance though. I mean, I took a big chance on JFK, big chance on Nixon. Nixon did not do well, but it deserved to do well. But heaven and earth, I mean, I took a lot of zeros in my life. Alexander was a huge effort, huge effort. And it got killed here in the States by some critics. Frankly, the audience were expecting Gladiator, and I wasn't making Gladiator. I was making another kind of movie. So it, it's been a lot of that problem in my life, trying to tell the way I think it should be told. For example, uh, most recently, Snowden. Very authentic story, because we actually spent time with him, a lot of time, and he gave us his point of view. It's his story, his point of view of the story. I believe it, but a lot of people don't. But still, because he was, let's call it a Boy Scout, he was a very sober young man. And I think, in a sense, dull, in a sense, dull, but that's who he was. And we tried to stick true to that. And that, it's better to have made him into Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, to make have a little more pizzazz. And that, that's always the case with movies. Do you put the movie star in or do you go with the reality? It pays off in certain ways to be like Nomad, Nomadland won Best Picture this year, right? And it's a very well-made movie. It's very authentic, it seems to me. And of course, the director, the female Chinese director, surrounded the film with real denizens of that world. And there's a truth to that. And it probably may pay off for her, but it certainly doesn't pay off for the majority of people who do that. You understand what I'm saying? Nomadland uh, is not going to make anything close to what a more fantasized production would have made. Mm-hmm. And another good example of that from your career was your first studio film in 1981, The Hand, which starred Michael Caine. Why was this as tough and self-defeating a first studio film as you could have made? First of all, the special effects are very complicated in that film, and you have a small monster, which is a hand. And to make that monster work, it requires experience. And I think a Polanski would have done it much better than me, but I certainly tried. And it was as tough a film to make because it's not an easy subject matter. It's about, what is it about? It's about a man who destroys himself, essentially, correct? Who's his own worst enemy. Those are not popular subjects. People always like to have an external villain. Well, this external villain being the hand is also in him. So it's a complex psychological equation to make that work. But I don't regret it. Also, my first film, I made it right after film school, was called Seizure. And it's somewhat a similar story where Jonathan Frid plays a novelist haunted by his own creation, his dream. In response to your first question about my father, I stayed who I was, and that's not always easier to identify with. But you're true to yourself, and that means you're true to others as well. And I found it interesting that you were initially reluctant to write Scarface, Ultimately, you did come around. You end up kicking your own cocaine habit in the process. You do some uh, boots-on-the-ground research in Miami, and then also in visiting Bimini. What happened in Bimini that had you fearful for the lives of you and your wife, Elizabeth? Yeah, it was a risky moment because we went down there. I was not getting far enough with the criminal element. I thought that Miami, nobody was talking. You know, I was only talking to lawyers and defense lawyers at best. And all the feds, there were several agencies. And, you know, I learned a lot. But by going over to Bimini, I sort of ran into the real thing. And I partied with them. And I met three of the middle management guys there. 
because it was a big business by that time. They were shipping every night. Cigarette boats were taking huge amounts of drugs across to Bay of Biscayne to Miami and cigarette boats. It was quite an operation. So I went out there and hung out with them. And one night, my wife and I were doing coke with the three of them. And it was a, a hairy moment because in the middle of the night, we're all, all of it gone, drinking, partying. And I mentioned the wrong name, a defense lawyer who I knew who had originally been a prosecutor, and he busted one of these three guys. And the moment I mentioned the name, the guy freaked out. He thought I was an undercover, basically, a, a guy who was pretending to be a screenwriter in Hollywood and was trying to bust him. So he, uh, yeah, the moment is described, and it gave me a sense of the fear that exists in that world of if you go up with these people, sometimes you're gonna, it's not going to turn out so well. They are Quicksilver. It's a dangerous business. People get killed, sometimes horribly. And my wife and I were very grateful to survive. We got out of there very lucky in the middle of the night. And we never slept the rest of the night, but we were scared. Did you instill that fear specifically in that scary scene in the apartment early on in the movie? Yes. When Tony Montana goes to buy Coke Mm -hmm. and uh, he runs into some awful characters who uh, intend to rip him off. And it becomes a, a horrible shootout, a chainsaw scene. Yeah, some tough stuff in there. And it happened here and there. Now, there was a lot of gruesome killing down in Miami at that time. You aren't shy about sharing your admiration for Jim Morrison. Obviously, you make the uh, classic movie The Doors in 1991. May I ask you about that in just a second? But I'm, I remember incorrectly that you initially tried to offer... Jim Morrison, the role of Elias in an early iteration of what became Platoon back in the late 60s, let's say? And if so, how close did you get to him with that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I was a young fan. I loved their music, and he was quite something. He was a mystic in a way, and more of a poet, really, than anything. And I think he wasn't a natural-born singer. He just formed this idea, and it became a very powerful band, The Doors. And I love their music, and I wanted him to be in the original version of Platoon, which was called Break, which I wrote in 1969. But it was not a realistic Platoon. It was a really uh, surreal story. And I wanted him to play the young man who I was at that time. And I never heard back, you know, typical, but it was okay. And years, years, years later, after he died in 73, and I was making the movie in 1991, the road manager, Bill Siddons, had gone over to Paris to clean out the apartment in Paris where he died. And he brought his possessions back. Among the possessions, he found my script, which was I'd sent to him years earlier. Wow. Actually, you know, two, three years earlier. So he was reading it. And uh, his wife made me aware of that and gave me the script back, the same script. And I <laughs> just, it was, it was, it was a, a link in the chain, so to speak. Very cool. Well, Oliver, it's crazy to rewatch The Doors all these years later, specifically because of Val Kilmer's performance as Jim. He not only obviously looked like him, but he acted exactly like him as well, to the point that it's been reported that he had to receive psychiatric assistance to get out of character when it was all said and done. And it's ridiculous that he wasn't nominated for an Oscar for that role, at least in my opinion. Is this portrayal of Jim Morrison the single greatest performance that you directed? I can't say that because I've had the luck to direct some fine performances. But certainly Val made a huge effort. It was a painful shoot in many ways because it was hard for him to, 
not only did he sing much of the songs, he was, I'd say about 70% of the track, he's Val. But, you know, when you sing like that, his voice would tire out. And it was physically, for him, demanding. He'd be pretty tired. And there were times we really had to rouse him and push him. He's a very straight shooter, Val. He's, you'd think he was on drugs, but not at all. He's probably never touched them. He's that kind of a pure soul. He was hard for most people to understand. He's not an easily communicative figure. He keeps to himself. He has his issues, too. Yeah, we did have a few fights, this, that. It was always, it was tough to shoot, but he was good. He was damn good. Although we left the film on negative turns, I don't think he was happy. He did a hell of a job, but he's his own worst enemy in many ways, too. So the Academy, whatever, you can you never predict. You know, generally speaking, at that time, this was too dark a movie for them or too negative a movie on drug use, sex. It was not exactly the Academy-type profile, so he got hurt. Nowadays, it might be different. Remy Malik, the guy who did the rock movie recently, got an Academy Award for uh, his performance, so standards have changed. Looked very similar, acted very similar as well, much like Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison. And it's wild to think about that both The Doors and JFK come out in the same year. And look, I'm somebody who grew up in Dallas, and JFK's importance cannot be overstated, the movie that is. Not only did you provide a logical explanation for JFK's murder that further exemplifies the lone shooter story as the most ridiculous conspiracy theory of them all, but this film may be responsible for the six degrees of Kevin Bacon game. That ensemble cast is still unbelievable, Oliver, including the late, great John Candy, in a serious role. Now, he had played some endearing roles throughout his career. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles comes to mind. But he is usually more used to Canadian baking it up than acting so seriously. Was it difficult to get him into the right frame of mind to actually act a a bit more seriously? Frankly, uh, Dean Andrews, the guy he played, was a bit of a character in New Orleans. I mean, everyone in New Orleans is a character, first of all. It's just one of the strangest cities I've ever been in. It's not quite like America. It's more of a Caribbean nation unto itself. So everybody's an oddball. But Dean Andrews (laughs) was out there, and he's a guy who, well, he's a key link. The film was based on all these characters, and they all existed. And I wanted to have identifiable actors in each role. So I deliberately tried to cast up for each one with the idea being that the audience already challenged by the three hour type length of the film and the complexity of the plot would follow the plot easier if they could see a face that they knew. And indeed, I think it worked. John was very nervous about playing the role, very nervous. And he was a, a lovely man, but you know, he's sweating like his hands, everything was sweating like crazy. He didn't know if he could do it. And I tried to encourage him throughout and he did a good job. And so did everyone. But I'd say that John, because of his background was more than nervous about it. It was great to see him come through. You know, he was a baseball freak. He owned a team up in Toronto. I think it was And Mm. Kevin Costner was also a baseball fan. So they hit it off and became friends. Wayne Knight is another one of those character actors who was in JFK, and he was also in Seinfeld, of course, as Newman. And there was a Seinfeld episode, the Magical Loogie episode, that satirically borrows from your film. Did you enjoy that episode of Seinfeld? I don't remember it. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Was it fun? 
it's a great episode. I highly recommend you uh, going back and checking it out. It uh, involves the game of baseball and a magical loogie that hit Keith Hernandez but was inspired by Roger McDowell way back in the day. Now, Brian Doyle Murray plays Jack Ruby in JFK. His brother, of course, is Bill Murray. I hadn't thought of this before doing research last night, Oliver, but you and Bill Murray, I believe, have never worked together. Did you ever get close to having him take part in one of your films? Bill Murray, no, I never did. Uh, He was quixotic. I produced a film that Milos Forman directed called Larry Flint, Mm -hmm. People Against Larry Flint, and uh, I remember Milos wanted Bill to play the role, and he had a hard time in terms of getting him to even respond to the script. So it wasn't like he was an easy guy to approach. I moved on with my life, but I never went to Bill Murray. His brother was very cooperative. I thought he did a nice job as Jack Ruby. He looked like him a bit. Yeah, he did. In 1994, you made Natural Born Killers. You showed actual television commercials following gruesome scenes to show the comforting, dare I say, subduing powers that these ads have on people. Coca-Cola actually okayed their polar bear ads to be used in this regard for the film. But when execs realized what they'd agreed to, they were furious. And that cracks me up. Does something like that put a smile on your face and make all the work that you put into a project all the more worth it when you realize you've rankled some execs like that? It was a pretty major issue at the time because Coca-Cola was a big company and uh, they were pissed off. And I remember uh, at the time it was Mike Ovitz was the big shot. He was the head of CAA agency and he helped us get through that. He calmed the situation down. But, you know, I don't remember the deal, but I thought that ad was funny and it worked. And I don't think it hurt Coca-Cola at all. I think it was, if anything, it gave it more recognition. Yes, it did. And uh, Rodney Dangerfield obviously plays a serious character in the movie, but it's framed in a, a such a fascinating way. So he's a molester of his own daughter, but it's framed as like this 1960s sitcom complete with laugh track, which I thought was a brilliant move on your end. Now, this is obviously a very disturbing and serious role for Rodney to get into, a guy who has been a comedian his entire life, never getting any respect. Was it difficult to get him into that character? It was. Put it this way, it was. I had always loved his stuff, and I just thought he was a natural because the movie is anarchic in the sense that it goes against everything we know. The whole idea of people growing up on American television is pretty, frankly, repulsive. If you looked at the sitcoms of the time, it was a view of life that was so unreal. I don't know that Americans had a sense of growing up in reality. And that was the idea that these two young people had grown up in a world where they had never had an education. All they'd seen was television. And with the reality was that she was being raped by her father, which was horrible and too horrible probably to do realistically at that time. Now they do it. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I just thought it had to be poked fun of. And we used the technique of a sitcom because it seemed like it matched the unreality of it. Rodney kept saying to me, this is not funny. <laughs> and I said, exactly. This is not funny, but it is funny when you exaggerate it like this. And his eyes are incredible, as you know. Mm-hmm. He wasn't comfortable doing it, but he did a hell of a job. And I enjoyed his company enormously. Uh, after that, he asked me to do one of his movies as a director. A funny movie, but I never did it because I'm not an expert at comedy. But I love doing those scenes with him. He was a gentleman and a lovely man. The only thing is he he would eat too much at a few of the dinners. He'd eat at somebody else's plate also, as well as his own. <laughs> that was his uh, one of his flaws. But he was a funny man, and 
lovely too. Interesting. Obviously, Woody was one of the stars of that movie. His dad, for a long time, has been linked to the Three Tramps photo going back to the JFK assassination. Did you and Woody talk much about the non-lone shooter theories revolving around JFK's murder? That's a sensitive point. I wouldn't go there. His father was arrested that day, and his father was later busted for murder of a judge, of a federal judge. Mm -hmm. I think Woody's very sensitive about that. But even if his father was there in being paid by somebody, he wouldn't have known what was really going on. No one knew who was on the ground there. They're chess pieces in a larger game. Right. I never went to Woody about that. Well, Oliver, I'm fascinated by the prospects of JFK Destiny Betrayed. It is premiering at Cannes in July. And this film is partially the result of you and your team pouring over declassified Kennedy assassination records, which happened as a result of our government passing the Kennedy Assassination Record Collection Act of 1992, which established the declassification of them in 2017. Legislators admitted at the time this is a result of your film JFK and its cultural impact being responsible for having to put something together like this. Was there any one piece of info that surprised you as you and your team were going through these declassified documents? We made a documentary about this. This is a very uh, subtle issue, and I'm not sure that this is the right place to talk about it. We made a documentary, which is actually we've cut it down to two hours now. And I think this is what they're going to show at Cannes. In conjunction with showing the film for its 30th anniversary, they're going to have this, what I call JFK Through the Looking Glass documentary. And what we do is we go back through the assassination and bring up all the points that came out from the Assassination Records Review Board which was not empowered to investigate the crime. It was just empowered to see the documents that were supposed to be shown to it, not an investigative arm. It was like, we want to see the documents and we will draw our own conclusions. We'll reveal these documents. Unfortunately, they didn't get the cooperation they needed. There was a lot of documents that were never shown to them. But of those that were shown, which was significant, no one has really reported on this in depth we have gleaned what's important and we put it on the film. And because there's a lot of detail here, I'm not gonna get into it right now, but it's really important that you feel the whole, the part of this thing that comes together. I mean, we give you facts about Oswald that you didn't know about his ties to the intelligence community. We give you facts about the autopsy that no one knew until recently, all of which came through them. They investigated the doctors, they investigated more witnesses than had been investigated ever by the Warren Commission or the House Select Assassinations Committee. They went further than them. We were able to put it together, but no one's put it together in the press because there's not a motivation to do so. It's just an old case. People don't want to know about it, but that's okay with me. I mean, we know that. We know that Trump in 2017 did not come out all the way and reveal everything. They reclassified quite a percentage of those files. I didn't realize that. Also, as the film tells us, the board told us that the Secret Service destroyed all the files Hmm. from that period. And there's a lot of information about their previous attempts to kill Kennedy in Tampa and in Chicago. A lot of that case, there's a lot of detail that needs to be brought out. And what it does is it enhances the picture of definitely something happened there, that it was had nothing to do with what the Warren Commission said. Does Malcolm Mac Wallace make an appearance in your documentary by chance? I know who you're talking about, but no, we didn't go into it. 
we went into the areas that were pretty conservative and solid. Wallace is a connection to Lyndon Johnson, Mm -hmm. who I believe had a role in the cover-up for sure. But that's part of the stretch that we didn't want to go into because we didn't have the evidence. Yeah, Lyndon Johnson and then Ed Clark, who of course is essentially his Karl Rove, uh, does feel like the evidence does point to them being part of this murder conspiracy, unfortunately. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising that even though... We didn't say, I didn't say murder, I said cover up. There's a difference. There's a murder, which was organized on its own level. And there's a cover up, which is a much bigger deal because you have to have a cooperation. People may not know the details, but they don't want to open the case. And there's a reason for it. It's a mess. The case is a mess. One of the things we trace is that there's no evidence, a chain of evidence for the rifle or the bullet. So there's just no link and or the fingerprints to Oswald. And we're very clear about that. We go through these guys. We make the chain of evidence clear. There is no chain of evidence that leads to Oswald. Oswald would be acquitted in any court in the land. The case would be thrown out. How can the Warren Commission come out and on the next day the newspaper is sanctified as the lone assassin theory? It's insane. And it was done that way. And then the the volumes were never read. The six volumes that came out afterward, three months afterward, that the evidence was finally looked at and never brought to the public's attention. It was a sham. It was a cover-up from the beginning. The media had to be aware of this because they didn't really examine the evidence. Well, it's a classic play where you get the court of public opinion going in one direction, and it's next to impossible to get them to change course, even after just a couple of weeks. On day one, uh, they announced that, well, actually, even before that, they said that uh, Oswald was a lone assassin. When they reported in the newspaper when he was killed, they said the assassin of the president was killed. They didn't say the alleged assassin. How would they know this? I'm pretty frustrated that you have not received the okay from an American company yet on this, considering how thorough you are when you put anything together, but much less this subject, which you obviously received a lot of praise for, but then a lot of criticism as well. Uh, A lot of it very uh, unfair, I'd say, back in 1991, but you're going to be as thorough as anybody if you are going through these documents to try and put something else together that you are literally calling a documentary for more American distribution companies not to be uh, jumping to try and take hold of this and run with it is a damn shame for me. But eventually it'll be out here in America, correct? I don't want to go there yet because it's not over. Okay. Uh, I mean, we did have a four-hour film and they had their reasons or whatever, but you never know. You know, they never tell you. If it is political, I can't say that for sure. Okay. I really believe that this two-hour version, although it's curtailed, may be a solution to find the right distribution. Although it's scary to consider that at the time, Warner Brothers really went out there and, and made the film because they believed in it. That's why they did it. They saw it as a very uh, tense thriller, and that's the way they released it. So times have changed. The old Warner Brothers is no longer there. They're more conservative in many ways, although they show more violence and they show more sex. But I don't think the thing is closed. I don't think it's a closed issue. And I do think it will see the light of day. Is White Lies a film that was supposed to be starring Benicio Del Toro? Is that still in the works for you? No, it isn't. Frankly, I closed it down. It was my script, but I don't think I was completely happy with it. Maybe one day, but right now, no. This business is exhausting, and I think you uh, sometimes run out of energy to take on 
it was a very sexy film and had a lot of crazy stuff in it, but we'll see what happens on that. How about A Bright Future? I believe it's a documentary about the benefits of clean energy, including nuclear energy. Is that something that's still uh, on track for you? Yeah, I've been working very hard on that for the last year. It's based on this book, and it's about clean energy, and the need for nuclear energy as part of that clean energy. We certainly believe in renewables, but we deal with the reality of the gap that exists between renewables and what we need in the future. The world is changing. It's not just the United States. It's China and India and all these other developing countries, the need for electricity is is enormous. And we're going to need four to five to six times as much by 2050. So what's going to make up that gap? And that's very important for us to understand, first of all, what nuclear energy is, because frankly, it is a marvelous discovery and it's the way the, the world works. And we're trying to show to people that it's quite practical and conceivable to have it. As France does, France, I just came over back from there. We've been filming there. They have 70% of their electricity, even more, comes from nuclear. Sweden, there's a lot of countries that have done this. And the United States has already have 20% of its electricity. But if we had done it the correct way, it would be, we'd be up to much higher numbers. We'd be 80% of our electricity would probably come from nuclear. Do you think we're not because the public is just overly concerned about the safety, that this is a much safer technology than people realize at this point? Yeah, but the public hasn't been educated to what we're trying to bring out in this documentary. Well, you have to see the film to see it, but that's one of the things that we have to deal with is the fear. The fear factor has prevented progress throughout history. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for the time today. Chasing the Light was one of my favorite books of 2020. I hope more people find out about it in 2021. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again when you write about the uh, next 40 years in your life. Thank you so much for everything, sir. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. And thanks to you for listening. If you like this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, click on the title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it'll take you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. Bookshop.org connects readers with independent bookstores. And if you're on Apple Podcasts and enjoy this show, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>